This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. We took a look back at some of the biggest shows of 2020, but now it's 2021, and we need to look at a really big issue now. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The coronavirus. If you look at where we are now at the level of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. We are in a very difficult, precarious place. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He talks candidly about the virus, vaccine, and the reluctance of African Americans to get them. It would be a shame if lingering concerns about what you're mentioning, the Tuskegee and other incidences, prevent African Americans and other minorities from getting a vaccine that could be life-saving to them and their families and their communities. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Chris, uh, this was uh, uh, another one of those situations where we go back and we talk to somebody that we've spoken to before in the past, and this is a rare thing. But this interview is with Dr. Anthony Fauci, and frankly speaking, if there's anybody right now that deserves a second interview on this program and and any other place, it's him. So um, I spoke to him earlier this week about all of the developments that relate to what we know right now about COVID-19, vaccines, the distribution, the status of new variants, mutations of the disease, and a lot of other things. And this is how that interview went. First of all, before we start, happy belated birthday. (laughs) Thank you, JJ. I appreciate it. (laughs) If I look like that when I'm 80, then I have actually had a drunk from the fountain of youth, which you obviously have. So first question, sir, I've heard you say in recent days that the darkest days may be ahead as we combat uh, COVID-19. Could you explain why you've said that? Uh, The reason I said that, JJ, is if you look at where we are now at the level of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, we are in a very difficult, precarious place. So we're averaging over 200,000 new infections a day. We go between two and 3,000 deaths per day. And every day we seem to break a record of the number of people in hospital with COVID-19. We're now over 120,000 people who are hospitalized. The slope and inflection of the curve of infections in this last surge 
which really started as the weather got colder and people were doing things more indoors, is already a very bad level of background infections. When you then look at what generally happens every time there is an event that gets people to congregate together, a post-event surge, we've seen that with Memorial Day, the 4th of July, Labor Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, there's every reason to believe, though I hope it is not the case, but nonetheless, it more likely will be the case that because of the travel that has occurred over the Christmas, New Year holiday, and because of the fact that people will naturally congregate indoors more than outdoors because of the weather in most regions of the country, where people understandably have a dinner with relatively large numbers of people, you know, 10, 15, 20 people at a big dinner or a big social gathering. Those are the things, as innocent as they sound, that are perfect setups for the spread of infection. And even though we have said, do not travel or curtail your travel, keep your social gatherings to household members or people very close to the household, understandably, people are not gonna do that. Some are not gonna do that, some will. If that's the case, there is the danger of seeing a surge that is superimposed upon the current surge that we're seeing. You usually see the results of that two to two and a half weeks after the event. So if you look at New Year's Day as the last of this particular seasonal happening, then two and a half weeks down the pike, you're in the middle of January. And that's the reason why I have been saying it is likely, though we hope it's not the case, but it is likely that we have a tough road ahead and the worst might actually be ahead. That's the explanation for why we've been saying that. You know, in the process of uh, looking at what you're talking about, you know, these 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 post-holiday surges and, you know, post-significant date surges, um, what is the d- determining factor that usually suggests how long these surges last? Um, I mean, is it the number of people that are actually out there? Obviously, that's a, a big um, element, I'm sure. The number of people that actually, you know, decide to go against the advice, or is it the availability of care? Uh, you know, the availability of care is is a different issue, J.J., If you break it down into what are the factors that lead to the surge and the factors are the things that you mentioned, it's the number of people who either travel or congregate as well as whether or not they actually adhere to public health measures. You know, we have a great disparity in our nation. There are some people, some cities, some states, some regions that seem to adhere very well to the public health recommendations of universal wearing of masks, keeping distances, avoiding congregate settings, including indoor and particularly indoor, washing hands frequently. There's some people who reject those things, who don't want to wear a mask. I mean, you go to certain regions of the country and you hardly see anybody wearing a mask. It's almost become, as we know, unfortunately, a political statement as to whether or not you want to wear a mask or whether or not you want to congregate. Those are the things that decide the the severity of a surge. Once the surge occurs, then there's the danger, as we're seeing in California, 
which is really having a very difficult critical time now that they are essentially running out of beds. They have, a, you know, it's a big state. They have a great health care system, and yet they're being stretched to the limits of, of really doing something that would have seemed unimaginable about, about having to make choices as to who they're going to be taking care of. So that's something that is, you know, a separate issue from how you get to that precarious situation. But once you're there, then you have a real problem of stressing the healthcare system. Yeah. There's been a lot of evidence that there's some type of COVID-19 variant that started, I believe, in the UK, or at least it was detected in the UK and is now believed to be in the US. I think it's Colorado, maybe. Uh, can you tell us what this variant is and how does it compare to the original COVID-19 strain? Yes. Well, SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. Namely, it has these, these molecular aspects of it that characteristically like to mutate. They mutate a lot. Most of the mutations are irrelevant. By irrelevant, I mean they don't have a functional consequence. It just changes a bit, but fundamentally, it's still the same virus. Every once in a while, a mutation occurs that changes the function a bit. There is a mutation that has occurred in SARS-CoV-2, predominantly in the UK, southeastern part of the country, and in London, that appears to be associated with an increased efficiency in spreading from person to person. Upon examination, it does not seem to make the virus more dangerous in the sense of more virulent and making people sicker, nor does it seem to have any impact on the protection that's afforded by a vaccine. But there does seem to be an association with spreading more efficiently. Uh, this mutant, and there's another mutant in South Africa that we'll just put aside for a moment just so to avoid confusion, but the one from England, from the UK, as I've said some time ago, I would not be surprised given the travel that comes from the UK to us as well as to other countries that then ultimately get to us, that sooner or later this mutant would be found in the United States. And you're quite correct, JJ. Very recently it has been identified in Colorado. And I would be absolutely certain that over the next few days, you're going to be hearing about more of these isolates, these mutants that have occurred in the UK. We will be seeing them in the United States. The way to deal with these things is to do what we talk about all the time, fundamental public health measures to prevent the spread of any virus, be it the classical one that we've experienced for now year, a year, 11 months, or the new mutant. The way you prevent spread is the same, the masks, the physical distancing, and the avoiding congregate settings. You know, in terms of vaccine distribution, where do we stand in terms of that? The Trump administration promised 20 million doses would have been done by year's end. I don't think we're anywhere close to that, can't be sure. Um, where does it stand and why does there seem to be a delay? Because it's my understanding there are less than two, two million that have been done. Why is there such a delay in getting them out? Well, the latest numbers that I've seen, J.J., are that although there were 20 million doses that were promised to be shipped 
to reach the destinations that they're now like 11 or 12 million. But of those, only about two to three million have been actually put into people's arms, namely actually utilized. You're absolutely correct. It is less than was projected. I hope that this is just an early glitch in a very difficult, big issue that's being undertaken to try and attempt to vaccinate the majority of people, the overwhelming majority of people in the United States is a big enterprise. Hopefully, as we get further into this enterprise, things will smooth out. It looks, and I hope that it's just what's called an early kind of a hiccup or bump in the road that will be corrected as we get into January. Mm -hmm. We know that first responders and the most vulnerable people are getting the shots now, certainly as well as according, as well as high profile influencers like yourself and the president elect, the vice president elect, the current president, vice president um, have been getting them. When will the next groups start getting it to your knowledge and who will be in those groups? There have been two levels that have been established by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which advises the CDC, who makes the ultimate determination of the priority. And as you mentioned correctly, the first priority were healthcare providers and people in nursing homes and long care, long-term facilities and those who care for them. The second priority were people who have important uh, critical functions in society, as well as people older than 75 years old. The third level has not been firmly established yet. And that level will likely, and I underline likely, JJ, because I'm not making that determination, the advisory committee will be, will likely be people with underlying conditions as well as other people in society. And then you'll get down to the next level. And then ultimately, I would hope by the time we get to April, we will have covered all the priority areas and reached what I would refer to for simplicity as open season, meaning anybody even those who are not on a priority list can start to get vaccinated. So I think between now and the beginning of April, we'll start to see the rollout of those other priority groups and we will complete them, I hope, by April so that we can really in earnest start to vaccinate anybody and everybody who wants to get vaccinated. There is concern among many in the population about taking the vaccinations, especially in the African-American community. The Colors podcast, which you've done before with me, and Chris before, and and Chris wasn't able to make it today, um, has... Um, focused on, of, of course, the impact of this deadly virus on minorities uh, and uh, minority groups. African-Americans appear to be at the top. I know this reluctance from conversations that I've had with people uh, to, to this vaccine, to taking this vaccine, has to do in part with lingering concerns about the Tuskegee experiment from so many years ago and underlying underlying layers of mistrust that still exist between African-Americans and the government in this country, um, right or wrong. What do you say to those who have this reluctance to taking this vaccine? Well, the first thing they have to say, JJ, is that um, the reluctance is understandable because that is a dark period in the history of our country where federal government medical people uh, did things that right now would be totally and completely unacceptable. So first of all, you recognize that the concern is understandable and don't put people down for that concern. Once you do that, then you try and explain that there have been situations now where 
where we are in 2020, going into 2021, that safeguards have been put in place decades ago that would make something like that now impossible to happen because of the ethics committees and the standards that have been put up. So once we get that discussion going, then the important thing is that it would be a shame if lingering concerns about what you're mentioning, the Tuskegee and other incidences, prevent African-Americans and other minorities from getting a vaccine that could be life-saving to them and their families and their communities. It would be almost a double shame because, first of all, as you mentioned, African-Americans have a greater incidence of getting infected because of the nature of the jobs that many of them have out in the community, making them be uh, more in contact with exposure to infection, as well as the fact that once they do get infected, they have a higher incidence and prevalence of underlying conditions that put them at a greater risk of a serious outcome. So with those things stacked against them, it would be doubly a shame if for reasons that are understandable, but today really not justifiable, that they themselves don't allow themselves to get vaccinated, which, as I mentioned, could be life-saving for them. You know, this is really important to me um, as an African-American, that people won't take the vaccine. And you gave a very eloquent uh, explanation of what you would say to folk to folks and what you would say about this. What is what is the layman's language? What does the person who is not skilled and schooled in the medical terminologies, et cetera, what should they say in a very succinct way to those people they know that won't get this vaccine? Yeah, I think the simple thing is look at the numbers of what is going on in the United States and throughout the world. We, and this isn't fake news, this isn't uh, any kind of conspiracy, this isn't uh, anything that is untrue. The numbers speak for themselves. We are going through the worst pandemic of a respiratory-borne illness in the past 102 years. We have now over 330,000 Americans have died, and we are still at the peak of it. So we've got to get people to appreciate that although they may not seem that they are in any risk or danger, they are, and maybe their parents and their loved ones are. And the way we're going to get out of this is if we all pull together. And pulling together means everybody who can get vaccinated to get vaccinated and everybody to adhere to the public health measures of really simple. They're not an encroachment on your liberty. They're being part of a community-wide approach to helping each other. If we get them to take that attitude, we can put this outbreak behind us. It is certainly interfering in a profound way with our lives, with our economy, with our ability to even function as a society. We want to end it. And the only way we're going to end it is if we all pull together. And getting vaccinated is one of the ways that we're all pulling together. And speaking of the vaccine, how are they performing? You've had it. How's it impacted you physically? Well, as expected, since the trials on the Moderna were 30,000 people and the Pfizer were 44,000 people, uh, there were no serious adverse events. There were some allergic reactions, mostly with Pfizer, but some with the Moderna, but they did not appear to be prohibitive to prevent people from getting vaccinated. Myself, it was just like any other vaccine that I have taken over so many years, JJ. I got injected in my left arm. Uh, About six to 10 hours later, I start to feel a small ache in the arm, which is expected. 24 hours later, the ache went away. I had no chills, no fever, 
everything seemed perfectly normal. I'm about a week out now from the, uh, a little bit more than a week out from the vaccine. I expect now three weeks from now to get my booster shot and we'll see what happens then, but I'm doing fine. Okay. Um, what about people with strong allergies? There have been recommendations made, and correct me if I'm wrong, not to take it or not to give it to those folks for now. Where does that stand? No, I, I think that that maybe is overstating, JJ. What we're saying is that if you have an allergy, you can take the vaccine, but you should try and do it in a place where they can observe you. And if you do get an allergic reaction, treat you. But we're not telling people who have allergies to stay away from getting vaccinated. If you clearly have an allergy to a component of something that's in the vaccine, then you don't want to get vaccinated. But anybody like who has a food allergy or an antibiotic allergy, you shouldn't stay away from getting vaccinated. You should just exert a bit more care when you get vaccinated. You don't want to deprive yourself of the protection against something that could be very serious, namely COVID, um, uh, the coronavirus infection itself. Your new job, you accepted fairly quickly after President-elect Biden asked you to be his new chief medical advisor. What will that work entail? Well, JJ, it will likely be similar in many respects to what I do now, um, but probably a little bit more prominent in the sense of, you know, we have a, a task force that met very regularly early on in the spring and the summer. But then as we got into the summer and the fall, the meetings of the task force, the White House task force and the current administration became less and less. It's very clear that President-elect Biden is making addressing the COVID-19 outbreak a very, very high priority. So I would imagine that I will be more intensively involved on a daily basis in giving advice to and participating in many of the policy decisions that are going to be made with regard to medical issues uh, when it comes to COVID-19. So I'm fully anticipating a, a much more of an active role in that. As 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 we see, um, as, as the Biden administration takes its place, should we see a very obvious uh, uptick in the amount of, of government or White House-led federal activity, uh, promotions uh, to get people to take vaccines, changes in distribution? Should we expect to see those things? Yeah, I think you're going to see all of those, JJ, as a reflection and result of the fact that the president-elect and vice president-elect Harris are going to be taking a very on-hands type of an interest in it. As you can see, they put together their group of people uh, who have been recently gotten announced, even additional people that are going to be very specifically involved in different aspects of this. So I think you're going to see what is without a doubt an uptick in emphasis on what is being done and how to improve it. Anything you want to add? No, that's it. I think uh, I think I've said really clearly what I what I wanted the message I want to get across to your audience. All right. Thank you. Um, Dr. Fauci, we appreciate your time. Anytime, JJ. Always good to be with you. You're listening to Colors. My name is Tara White. I am an African-American woman, and I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. Um, I came to understand racism as a series of power relationships. And so um, my, my thinking evolved about that. Um, and that power, in those power relationships, um, uh, you know, people are placed, you know, in certain kinds of hierarchies or whatever. But I also um, came to understand racism 
as um, a series of power relationships or, or, or power using power to control access to resources. And that's, um, that's, that's where I am now, that it's not just about um, power, but it's also about using that power to control access to resources for black and brown people. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Well, Dr. Fauci is always a great interview. I, I think your remark about the fountain of youth because he's 80 years old and, and with the exception of the first pitch at Nationals Park, doesn't look or act like he's 80 years old. Uh, but the other, the other part is the energy that he has because this guy is on early morning television and radio. He's on late night television and radio. He just seems like he cannot be fatigued, even though he is constantly being asked to talk about this. So, um, He's he's yeah. uh, he's incredible. And uh, yes, he is the energizer bunny. I think a part of the reason for that energy, Chris, is that he recognizes that it's all hands on deck right now. This is something that nobody in our generation has ever faced before. This is something that last time something like this happened was 100 years ago or more. And people weren't n- nearly as prepared or they weren't and nearly as well-versed as we are now about what we're facing. And he is a repository of information. He's been doing what he does for 40 years. Uh, and that's a big part of the reason, I think, why he enjoys doing this and is so dedicated to doing it. But the other part of it, too, is that this, well, 2020 is the deadliest year in U.S. history. And he gets it. And he realizes that it could be a lot worse still if people don't get this and start dealing with this in a more effective way. And he mentioned something about promoting getting the vaccine. To me, that's curious. I live in Florida. And here the governor has decided that those who are 65 and over are going to be among the first people to get the vaccine after the healthcare workers themselves who are working in the hospitals and with sick patients. So the next group up is seniors 65 and over. The there is I mean, there are certain people that are anti-vaccine, period. But the headless screaming headline today in the local newspaper was where's my shot? Because um, people in Florida, seniors who've said that we've been told by the governor, we get it first. uh, We want our shot and people are anxious. There's not going to be much reluctance that I can tell here in Florida. I don't know how it is in the rest of the country. What's your take on that? Well, there is reluctance in a lot of places in the country, and some of them that are reluctant to to get these vaccines are anti-vaxxers. They won't get any vaccine for a number of different reasons, which include personal, political, and some religious reasons. But there are a lot of folks in the African-American community that are reticent about getting this vaccine. And um, a lot of it, and we spoke, as you heard, with Dr. Fauci about that. And, you know, having some firsthand experience with some of these folks, I've actually had conversations with these people that are very smart people, um, very, uh, very much uh, on board with um, all of the requirements and uh, the government guidance on how to deal with this ma- mask and social distancing and non-congregate settings and washing hands. And, but they're still concerned about this vaccine. And a lot of it has to do with mistrust of the government historical mistrust. And, that, and, and this is especially true in the African-American community? 
Yeah, it's especially true. And, uh, you know, you probably have heard this, the Tuskegee experiment yeah. back in 1932. A lot of people are talking about this right now, but a lot of people, I'm not sure how many people know what it was, but it was a study that began uh, with the participants who were primarily sharecroppers, and many of them had never visited a doctor before. And this was a, a, a time when there was no known treatment for a very contagious venereal disease called syphilis. So they were all recruited into this study and promised a lot of things. Uh, and in the end, none of these promises were, were followed through on 15 years into the study. Um, you know, many of them just had very bad outcomes. In order to track the disease's full progression, the researchers provided no real care or effective care as the participants experienced severe health problems, including blindness, mental impairment, and even death. And this just seeped into the, the history of the African-American community. And once something gets into the historical timeline and is, is, is conveyed from generation to generation, there's going to be something in the background that tells people whenever situations like this come up to be skeptical. And that's a part of the reason why. But what I am saying to all of these folks is yes, I understand it. And like Dr. Fauci said, you have reason uh, to, to be skeptical about this. But this is nothing that we have seen before. This is nothing that we will ever see again, most likely in our lifetimes. And if we're not careful, our lifetimes could be cut short. So we have to get these vaccines. Take this right now as a piece of advice from a guy like Fauci who says, regardless of what your reservations are, this is, this, is the, this is now and this is not then. You know, a lot's been done to stop things like what happened during the, the, the Tuskegee experiment from happening again. So please get that shot. And, uh, and a lot of it with the Tuskegee um, experiment was lack of, um, of candor. Um, these people who were not educated were brought in to do an experiment, and they, as you say, they were promised uh, to get go to a doctor, and they'd get, I don't know, kind of other things. And whether they got them or not, they really weren't told what was going on and what was being done to their bodies. They weren't forced into doing it. They said, okay, but there was no, um, they, nothing about it was candid. They were not, yeah. you know, they, nobody gave them a list and said, okay, here are the possible side effects. Here's what we want to do. Here's our goal. They didn't do that at all. Now that's completely different than now when yeah. everything is being explained to us by Dr. Fauci and others about the vaccines, about how they work, about how many doses you need, about how much time there is between the shots you get, about what possible side effects like you asked him about. I mean, things now are, you know, all, everything is, is above board and that was not the case in the 1930s for for these um, sh sharecroppers in uh, in tuskegee the other big story this week uh, that relates to colors is about um, uh, tamir rice um, and the officers who shot him uh what was that in 2016 or 2014 24, 2014 2014 uh, the federal government has decided not to not to prosecute them because they say that the video of the shooting was just not 
it was just too flawed for them to be able to pass judgment on it. And it got me thinking about this. So the, to tell the story real quick, you got a 12-year-old kid who had a pellet gun hanging around in a park in Cleveland in the wintertime, bored, just looking for something to do. We, listen, I was a 12-year-old kid, and I had a pellet gun, and you know, I hung around places shooting cans and things like that. So this kid is doing that. Somebody calls the police, says suspicious activity, and then the police respond. And in the end, this 12-year-old kid who's armed with nothing but a pellet gun uh, is shot and killed. Um, my question about that is, and don't jump on me for this, because I, I, I think I'm asking this in all seriousness. Would this happen today? And by today, I mean the beginning of 2021. Or have we, even in the last year, evolved far enough that the police are probably going to be a lot more cautious before they use deadly force? I won't jump on you for that, because I think that's a very uh, honest question. And uh, I don't know that it wouldn't happen today because we you know there we we continue to see situations where uh, these kinds of uh, events are taking place uh, several since George Floyd's death um and the the thing with this chris is that yeah there is a heightened sense of awareness when it comes to how black men are treated by police but there's also a heightened sense of of of, of nervousness if you will when it comes to um police officers uh, and in cases with black men, just just, you know, just think about that situation. Uh, well, many situations uh, recently where for, for instance, where a man is a black man is, is going to his truck to uh, uh, to get something out of his truck. Um, it was believed to be uh, a knife or whatever, but the, a policeman shot him in the back seven times. Um, there's a there's a lot of nervousness that's that's out there right now, and and so I can't say that this wouldn't happen again right now. The the, the one of the best things I think, and and there's been a debate about it, um, is body cams on police officers, and more in my, the county where I live in Florida, the the sheriff is very big on body cams for his officers. Because he says that protects both the citizens and the officers. So if you could look at it from their viewpoint, you can get an idea as to what they perceive the threat is. So it goes both ways. You know, I, I don't know um, if that can even be a federal law. I, I, I don't I guess it probably can. I think policing is local. But I would like to see all police officers wear body cams because then we get into a case of deadly force. We would have evidence. I mean, I looked at the grainy. Yeah the grainy um, footage of, um, of the shooting of uh, Tamir Rice. And it is very, you know, it's very difficult to tell what happened because the quality is not very good and it's taken from a distance. Yeah. But you know, there's the other part of the problem too, Chris is police officers that there aren't being, that aren't, aren't being genuine with this process. They're being disingenuous or, or at least they appear to, because again, in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, 47 year old Andre Hill gunned down by a police officer. Uh, and then suddenly the body cam comes on. But, you know, there's this question that, again, your friend Doug Ganser, the former state's attorney in Maryland, pointed out is training. But before we get too far away from the Tamir Rice situation, there's something that I wanted to point out that struck me right at the top of this when we got this news that the Justice Department uh, had closed its investigation with no uh, charges. That was six years ago. Why did it take six years to tell this family that? 
I mean, essentially you have this family that suffered this whole time with no closure. And then six years later, you come and say, oh, we took six years because we couldn't figure out what was on this video footage. I mean, everybody knows that this was a tragic situation, but did it take you six years to tell the family this? And that, that is, that's a part of this whole process too, is just taking the feelings and thoughts of people in the African-American community into consideration when engaging in situations like this. Yeah, and I think it also has to be priority. I mean, you've you got. I mean, the Justice Department, you know, has literally thousands of cases, and um, you know, the, was this pushed down because they said, "Oh, it's a twelve-year-old kid." We can't. Is there some, I mean, why did it take six years? That's a very valid question, and I don't know the answer to it. I don't think you do either. Well, I certainly don't have a, a solid answer to it. I mean, I have what I think, and that is before. George Floyd, again, there was this idea, just as was the case with Trayvon Martin and many other Mm -hmm. um, black men, that no, they weren't as important, these cases, uh, and there must have been some reason why it happened. And, you know, the cops wouldn't do something like this unless they were provoked or whatever, until we saw what happened with George Floyd play out pretty much on, on live television. Yeah. On, right. my, on live video. Right. Then people started thinking differently, but back then six years ago, I don't think we were there. And that was, was my point when I was asking, would this happen now or, or have our, um, have we, our, you know, perceptions been raised to the point now that we're sensitive to the fact that this is going on and, um, and it's wrong. And that's, and, you know, it took George Floyd dying, unfortunately, six yeah. months ago for that or seven months ago for that to bring it to our attention. But um, today, I, I just, I, I hope, I think we have made it, we've raised the, it to the point where police are going to be more cautious. Um, and I, I, so I, I, I think that is, I think that's the case, but let me, let me ask this. And, and I, I have an answer to this too. I don't know. You don't know if the, if Tamir Rice had been a white 12 year old boy, would he have been shot and killed? Of course not. No way. I mean, you know, the answer to that. We both do. I, I, I believe you're right. I, and, and then what I would ask the police officers is, what was it about him that was suspicious and whether they would say, well, he's a black kid with a gun, which he really was. I mean, he's a black kid, but he didn't have a gun. He had a pellet gun. It's a, you know, I honestly, you can't do harm with it, but it's not, you know, it's not a weapon per se. Yeah. You know, I mean, granted they have to do things quickly and they have to do things in a way uh, they have to make split second decisions, but you layer that, on top of the situation there. There are problems in some communities that are historic that have to do with uh, crime and that have to do with drugs and other things. Granted, I'm going to give you that. But the issue that had gotten so out of control until this George Floyd situation came along was that it had just been taken for granted that if I see a black man or somebody who looks like a black man with some with something that looks like a weapon, then I've got to assume that this is a person with a weapon and I've got to take them down. There have been numerous cases, Chris, where people, black men have been taken, have been killed 
uh, reaching into their pockets. Not sure how smart that is, but, you know, coming out of that pocket with uh, a, a, a mobile phone or a set of keys or something or an like ID that. or something. Yeah. Um, and so it's this, 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 this place that America has found itself in where there is no, there, ha- there was no time for, you know, them to think rationally about what they were doing because they were pressured by society and they were pressured by uh, the thought process, the status, the status quo of the day. It's something I want to talk about very quickly, Chris. In the last few weeks since the 2020 presidential election, a number of threatening emails have come to me and calls. Really? Yes. And, um, you know, whether what have, it's, they, what have they said? Well, I mean, whether it's about the election or race relations, foreign relations, COVID-19, the Colors podcast, um, there have been these calls and there have been these, you know, emails or whatever. And these, from personal experience, here's what's happening. There are some very angry, frightened people spread out across the country that believe that we in the media are responsible for the state of political affairs in this nation. Some of them that have reached out also believe that I and other members of the media are not covering certain events, and they believe that we're not covering the issues and people that validate their suspicions. This is, this is unlike anything we've seen in the last 40 years or so, but it is real and it is very dangerous. And simply put, many of these threats are coming from the misinformed. The bottom line is this from, from, from my perspective. Some of them say they're willing to commit violent crimes to rectify the wrongs that they believe have been done to them. Nothing that I can say here on the Colors podcast is going to change what they're thinking because they're not listening to Colors. So the reason why I'm saying this is to those of you who know people that are or may be frightened and angry about the state of elections and race and foreign relations and COVID-19 and all that stuff that I mentioned, violence is not going to fix it. So pass that on to them and let them know that all it's going to do is further divide and damage the country. Yeah. Remember, John Lewis said good trouble. So that would imply there's bad trouble. Good trouble is okay. Bad trouble is not. I I think that um, that sums it up. If you'd like to write to us and I, I hope you won't send us hate mail or threats, but we would like to hear your opinion on our podcast or any thoughts you have. Um, please do. We are at the colors podcast at gmail.com. I'm JJ green and I'm black. I'm Chris core and I'm white. And this is colors. Coming up in our next episode of colors. Sugar and spice and everything nice. That's what little white girls are made of. While black girls are more likely to be suspended from school, seen as more promiscuous, and less likely to be believed when sexually assaulted. The importance of the messages being sent to black girls and black women. Say their names, Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland. Then ask yourself, do black girls' lives really matter? Coming up in our next episode of Colors. And as we kick off 2021, we want to do it by thanking everyone who helped us so far. Mike Jakaitis, Tiffany Arnold, Stephanie Gaines Bryant, George Molnar, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Ellie Rowe, Greg Strassel, Beth Gibbs, 
Hillary Howard, Sean Anderson, Thedford Collins, Dimitri Sotis, Fonda Mwangi, Adisa Hargett Robinson, Shamara Morrison, Kevin Stanfield, Kyle Cooper, Del Walters, Jocelyn Chesson, Mitchell Miller, Audrey Henson, and of course, we want to thank Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic and Nana Kabina for our music. And finally, as we continue to navigate the waters of race relations in America, just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.